Dunkin' Cold Coffee can be brewed at home in your Keurig coffee maker with Dunkin' Cold K-Cup pods. Just brew it hot over ice and enjoy flavor that's crafted to serve cold. The home with Dunkin' is where you want to be. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. On today's show, Donald Trump warns his indictment could lead to violence and celebrates the January 6th attacks in Waco, Texas. DeSantis curious Republicans are already down on Tiny D. And later, former White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki stops by to talk about the Republican primary, Joe Biden's 2024 strategy, and her new show on MSNBC. Speaking of shows, love it. I hear you're going back out on tour. Love or leave, it's going back on tour. You can get tickets right now. We're in the middle of the presale. Crooked.com slash events. The code is errors because it is the errors tour. Do you get errors. it? Errors. Do you get it? Yeah. Do you get it? It's our errors tour. I didn't get it until today, but now I get it. <laughs> Tommy's a recently converted Swifty. Yes. He has his midriff exposed for all of us to see. <laughs> we are going to be traveling across the country. We're going to go to some uh, places that uh, where it feels good to be gay, some places where it could feel better. And we're going to raise money for Boat Save America's Fuck Bands, colon, Leave Queer Kids Alone, parentheses, and Adults, and All of Us, You Absolute Freaks, and parens, fund. A lot, of, a lot of brainstorming around that title. Yeah. I, I, we could have tronked it, but we didn't. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, <laughs> we didn't tronk it. So you're going to be you're going to be on the road for a while. You're going to yep. be out of the office? You bet. Oh, oh boy. that's great. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Yeah. What are you guys? We'll miss you. Any chance you add some shows? Yeah. I guess you guys have to. (laughs) Guess you guys will have to figure out a way to make conversation between noon and three. (laughs) Crooked dot com slash events. Go get your tickets. All right. Let's get to the news. Donald Trump held his first big rally of the 2024 election in Waco, Texas, this weekend right in the middle of the 30th anniversary of the deadly standoff between federal agents and a cult that right-wing extremists still view as a symbol of government overreach. I also just kind of just, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I do think this before we even get into it, I don't want to cover it while we talk. I think people are reading too much into Trump going to Waco, thinking it's about federal government violence when it, he just think it was, it was cool that David Koresh fucked all those guys' wives. Wow. Oh, did not. Yeah. Yeah. I thought you were going to make like a cult joke, but. Um, David Koresh did do that, though. Sorry, keep going. Everyone know who David Koresh is out there in our audience? Yeah. That was the Waco thing, right? Yeah, we have the Branch Davidians. A bunch of elder millennials. <laughs> that happened in 93. <laughs> That's 30, 30 years. Yeah, yeah, it's been a while. The twice-impeached Republican frontrunner played footage of the violent insurrection he incited at the rally before it started. You always want to start the rally with just some uh, some January 6th footage mm, behind the hits, right? Mm-hmm. They also played uh, the song... He recorded with a group of men who've been imprisoned for their role in the January 6th attack. The J6 uh, choir. The J6 Please choir. Name of course. Them. Thank you. Of course. Yeah. Donald Trump, the fourth tenor. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have to joke about it because what else yeah, are you going to do? Gonna do? Uh, Trump also talked about his potential indictment for the first time. We're waiting for it. It's coming any minute. Who knows? Andy, you're going to let us know if it happens during the... Uh, during the pod, right, Olivia? Okay, great. Thank when you. When he finally much. gets arrested, he's gonna be like, "Ah, I called that a week ago." Old news. <laughs> anyway, here's uh, here's how we talked about it at the uh, at the rally. The Department of Injustice in Washington D.C. was investigating me for something that is not a crime, not a misdemeanor, not an affair. I never liked horseface. I never liked. I never. It's just not. It's terrible. Thing. That wouldn't be the one. Legal scholars can't believe what they're witnessing. And yet, after going over 11 million pages of documents, they've got nothing. It probably makes me the most innocent man in the history of our country. Friends of mine say that. They're not coming after me. They're coming after you. And I'm just standing in their way. And I'm going to be standing in their way for a long time. You will be vindicated and proud. And the thugs and criminals who are corrupting our justice system will be defeated, discredited, and totally disgraced. That's what's happening. From the beginning, it's been one witch hunt and phony investigation after another. Either the deep state destroys America or we 
destroy the deep state. That's the way it's got to be. That's the bumper sticker right there. The first clip of him sounded like someone doing an impression of him. It really got that like kind of rumbling grumble. It's going to be really hard to tell the uh, the real Trump from the AI Trumps. Yeah, I'll work on that. Uh, <laughs> so uh, Trump said all of this after last week's truths where he threatened that there could be, quote, death and destruction if he's indicted. And then another truth posted a picture of him waving a baseball bat next to Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg who, by the way, has now received death threats, including a letter threatening to kill him with a powdery substance that's still being tested. How concerned are you guys about the potential for violence if Trump is indicted? We've talked a lot about sort of the legal case, the politics. We haven't talked a lot about the the potential violence yet. Yeah, but there's also a bomb threat uh, at the courthouse. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, Trump, the Trump fora on the internet, uh, already a pretty hellish place, has gotten pretty violent. Yeah. Um, the letter with the white powder said, uh, Alvin, I'm going to kill you, followed by many exclamation points, um, which you'd think you think you could just use a period when you include the white powder. Well, no, not in 2023, because, you know, for a certain cohort, it seems uh, passive aggressive, passive aggressive. <laughs> every sentence is is exclamation point at this point. Mm. So that's probably so what that is. Careful with I am use. quite concerned about violence. I, I am, I think, heartened by the fact that the initial call for protests were met with uh, mockery from some people on the far right. They were like, uh-uh, we got arrested last time. This dude hung us out to dry. No way. But it only takes one deranged person. Yeah. And yeah, that's you know, in, in Cincinnati, a few days after the FBI searched Mar-a-Lago, a Trump supporter showed up at the field office with a rifle and was killed. Yeah, it's the, you know, we've, we've already been through Trump at the height of his power, causing a January 6th that wasn't able to do anything to disrupt our government but did do a lot of damage and hurt and killed a lot of people he can do the same thing here just takes one person having their radio tuned to the trump frequency uh to show up and cause some chaos which is clearly what he wants which is why he's escalating he was disappointed with the response so he needs to sort of turn the heat yeah, up just feel like that to your point on me about how some of them are worried because you know the last group of people who did this got arrested mm-hmm. i do think that's like you know a lot of them on social media were warning that this is like an fbi these protests in favor of trump would just be an FBI trap Mm -hmm. that they're just hoping to get people to those protests so that they can arrest them. But it does show that like what the federal government and law enforcement did after January 6th is being is a deterrent. It's completely yeah. a deterrent. Turned for out these locking up violent protesters is a deterrent or violent insurrectionists rather. Which is why it's so important that that happened. Yeah. And he and it does also matter that Trump does not currently have the ability to pardon any of these people. Yeah. And I also think by the way that like, you know, Dan and I talked on Thursday about how um, you know Joe Biden obviously doesn't want to be getting into the legal analysis of this case or talking about the case and other Democrats. But I do think, and you've seen some of them do this already, that speaking out about Trump trying to incite violence again is probably an important thing for a lot of Democrats to do. And I don't think that Joe Biden needs to like plan a speech about it. But if asked about it, I sure would make a comment. Yeah, I mean, you know, Trump called Alvin Bragg at the Waco event uh, absolute human scum. And that's just, that is textbook dehumanizing language. And language like that historically has been a prelude to violence of some sort. So even if it's par for the course for Trump. Yeah, and I think, and Biden elevated this issue in the run up to the midterms. And I think it was the right thing to do. It was the smart thing to do. And it also lets people know that this is, this threat is serious and it's not just Trump spouting off, which it could be easy to to think. Why do you guys think Trump and... Uh, MAGA politicians are so obsessed with the January 6th rioters. Uh, last week, Marjorie Taylor Greene and some others uh, led a, a Codel <laughs> to visit uh, <laughs> to visit January 6th rioters in jail. I mean, these are like, these are his shock troopers. You know, these are the ones he could count on in his darkest hours to travel to D.C. and in some cases physically fight for them. And I think, I think what Lovett said earlier is right. I mean, there is this narrative out there that he's abandoned them and I bet he's worried um, he didn't pardon them. He just recently dropped a single when he was working with Kanye for months <laughs> on this track, you know? Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's it's part of like knowing your audience. And, and back to the location of the rally in Waco, I mean, a huge slice of the Republican base has this fetish for these right-wing anti-government groups. David Koresh uh, in the Waco standoff was a source of inspiration for them. Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber who killed 168 people, said that his terrorism was retribution for the Ruby Ridge and Waco standoffs. Uh, the quote was, I wanted the government to hurt like the people of Waco and Ruby Ridge. And so, you know, I, I, 
they can say that this was an accident. Lieutenant Governor of Texas, Dan Patrick, was like, oh, Waco is centrally located. That's why we told him to go there. I, 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 do you believe that? I don't believe that. Yeah, it's so it's like a why message. It's such, why it's such a bustling metropolis and the yeah, it's why the biggest city in Texas because it's so centrally located, right? Where all the votes the are. Yeah, it's. Uh, I also do it just for that rally. It, you know, we'll talk about who didn't and didn't get applause, but the person who gets the most applause was actually Mike Lindell, which tells you that like this is a group of people. They want their worldview to be perfect, and the only way their worldview can remain perfect and like unsullied by any nuance or. Uh, uh, controversy or sense in which they might not have all the answers if these January 6th insurrectionists aren't political prisoners. So they have to be political prisoners because that's the only way this whole story makes sense. That's right. Yeah, I think and I think that's what Trump is doing. He wants to muddy the waters on his greatest political vulnerability, which is, you know, attempting a coup and inciting an insurrection. It would take down any normal candidate. Hopefully, it'll take <laughs> well, but, you know, yeah. Teflon Don. <laughs> but I also think for all of these everyone in the MAGA movement here, like grievance politics depends on these people being seen as victims of persecution, specifically elite persecution and not perpetrators of violence. Right. So they always have in order to be aggrieved, in order for this to work, they always have to be the victims of some plot. Trump's entire stump speech is about how corrupt and incompetent and in some cases evil the government is. And the message is very apocalyptic. And I imagine that kind of message resonates with this audience and with the defense of an event like Waco or an event like January 6th. I remember Clive Bundy, the rancher who had a standoff with federal agents. Like he got tons of support from Republican elected officials, some of this like useful idiots like Ted Cruz and, and Rand Paul, but also from Dean Heller spoke out, like a, a, someone who we think of as sort of a never Trump moderate. So yeah, I mean, you know, Trump is like fanning these flames very much. At these events, the elites are out to get you. The federal government's out to get Deep you. State. They have guns. They're coming for you. That's why you should have guns. I mean, this is a whole. And you yeah. have Tucker on every night using the footage that McCarthy gave him to tell a story that isn't true about the fact that it was just a couple tours run amok, and that is this that every, Trump shouted that out at the yes. Waco event. So everything is everything is feeding back to this idea that they are being unjustly held and prosecuted. Why? Because it was an insurrection. Why? Because Trump won. I learned in prepping for the show that Roger Stone dedicated his 2015 book to, in part, the Branch Davidians who died at Mount Carmel. Wow. That is Oof. wild. Yeah, that's um, a deep cut right there. Yeah. How was the rest of the book? <laughs> Get past the fucking <laughs> to my beloved dedication. wife. <laughs> and to the Branch Davidians, yeah. So Trump got plenty of criticism for all this violent rhetoric, even... Uh, from some of his Republican supporters and MAGA media friends. What do you think are, now that we've talked about how uh, terrifying all of this is, what do you think are the political implications of making his various investigations and potential indictments the centerpiece of his campaign? He he basically said the weaponization, he did say the weaponization of the Justice Department is the central issue of our time. <laughs> so what, let's talk about the political implication. Let's start with the primary and then we can talk about the general. So I watched the, the Waco uh, remarks. Uh, it was, what, a full 45 minutes of this, mm -hmm. of this grievance stuff? Just endless, endless, endless. And I was so zoned out by the time I got to the end of the deep state section <laughs> that I, ha I was like, I was halfway through the paragraph where he hit DeSantis and I had to roll it back because I was like, wait, when did, he tr when did he get out of his fucking personal vendettas what speed were you doing i was at 1.75 thank you for I asking did, I did two well then you slow it back two, huh? you slow yeah. to you slow to one you slow to one and he sounds like he's losing it yeah he, sounds he really sounds slow and and, and yeah, drunk well. uh but but he he basically speaks like this for 45 minutes and he goes uh and so that's why they're attacking me for you and <laughs> <laughs> rings, rings a bit hollow. It, it's just unbelievable. And so no wonder the audience basically was dead silent through the remaining 45 minutes of his speech where he actually got to the message that his people are trying to get him to deliver. It's interesting. We've gone through sort of this cycle where for a while, basically all of last year and in the wrap to the midterms, every Trump speech was all about Trump and 2020 and how the election was stolen from him. And then like he went on this little burst of you know, I'm going to announce extreme right wing policy to get to the right of DeSantis on all this culture war stuff. And I'm going to talk about policy a little bit. And now he is this speech. He's just got right back into like it's 80 percent me grievance 2020 insurrection. Now my prosecution and in, in indictments, all that kind of stuff. And like 20 percent other shit. 
Yeah, and he gets to the message, which is the anti-DeSantis, the pro-Trump anti-DeSantis policy message is the one he put in that long statement he put out about DeSantis, which is like a very tough and very sort of clearly well thought out hit on DeSantis. And he ran through it in full. But by the time he got there, these people have been standing out in the sun for hours. He's Trump. The plane landed and he sits there for half an hour on the plane having lunch, doesn't give a fuck what happens to these people. And did you notice how he does the full speech and then they play this new sort of soundtrack, this sort of orchestral movement, and then he just <laughs> sums the whole thing up for like another seven to yeah, 10 minutes and done. does it all again. But John, to your, to your point about like primary versus general message, I mean, I just think Donald Trump views every war is just a series of short-term battles and he doesn't really care about the day after that. And so in the primary, this does let him get back to just dominating every news cycle. And now everything, once again, is a litmus test in, about how much other Republicans are supporting him against this unfair, like deep state movement against him. And, the, you know, notably, one of the biggest applause lines at the Waco event was an attack on Mitch McConnell. And then it's followed up by Marjorie Taylor Greene getting like rapturous applause. Nobody cares that Mitch McConnell has done more to advance the things they ostensibly care about than any other Republican alive and that she has done nothing. So if he wins the nomination, I think like this kind of crap is what moderate voters will not like or at least like least about him. But we'll see. Yeah. I mean, the latest polling from January of this year, right after the anniversary of January 6th, uh, data for progress showed uh, 74 percent of all voters think Trump supporters did the wrong thing by inciting violence and threatening our democracy. 17% think it was the right thing to stand up for Trump and overturn the election results. It's overwhelming, but you'd love that 74 to be higher. I know. Well, among yeah. But then among Republicans voters, 61% thought it was wrong, 27% thought it was right, which among Republicans, uh, probably better than I expected. Still awful. So it is a fuck. It is a loser in the general. Like we just went through a midterm election where all of the election denier candidates who were extreme did poorly, where Trump was blamed for a lot of these losses, where like extremism celebrating January 6th, talking about the stolen election. It was just a loser for this, Republican candidates. Well, and also he's getting he's getting some, um, I think, uh, uh, unhelpful feedback from what this crowd likes. I mean, this these are the these are Internet adults, goons and dead enders. You know, yeah. These are people with gold under the stairs. Uh, just absolute lost fucking souls yeah. out there for the, five you sure that's hours. The wrong move right the, now. <laughs> the, 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 the Grateful Dead had roadies, but the people who went to the Waco show, like those are the yeah. diehards. Yeah, you know what I mean? See him at Waco. It was amazing. <laughs> you weren't at Waco. <laughs> No, uh, oh, I'm talking about 23, fans, 23 uh, Waco, not 93 oh, Waco. Yeah. Starfire oh, at Waco is incredible. 2023 yeah. Waco. Yeah, did you drop acid at Waco Trump event? Yeah, of course I did. I will say on Thursday's pod, Dan and I were talking about like what the potential indictment might, what effect it might have uh, in a Republican primary. And I was saying that like there's, there's there could be two reactions from sort of DeSantis curious voters, right? People who are open to an alternative to Trump, right? And one could be, well... This is all about electability. More indictments for Trump means even more baggage. Can't we just get Trump without the baggage and, and, and nominate DeSantis? Or it could be, you know, the the liberal elite institutions and the deep state are out to mm -hmm. get Trump and we have to defend Trump, even if we think eh, maybe he's not the maybe maybe we're tired of Trump. We're going to stand by him. And sure enough, Semaphore at the rally interviews this 55 year old Latina woman who said she'd been flirting with voting for DeSantis, but was disappointed in his response to Trump's potential indictment and would now keep her vote with Trump. Yeah, I, I think you know, it's interesting. We were talking about this on Pod Save the World's great show that comes out on mm. Wednesdays. We talked well, talk about all sorts of foreign policy news. Uh, and mm, seems uh, like you veered sort of into other other shows territory there. <laughs> Max, <laughs> no, Max Fisher, <laughs> Max Fisher, the newest contributor here at Crooked Media, did a sort of. Uh, talked to some political scientists and like looked at the landscape of countries that have or have not prosecuted presidents. And they said that uh, where it was effective was often more developed democracies when the list of charges kept adding up and up and up and up. And, and people were finally like, OK, like Jacob Zuma in South Africa, like there were like 13 charges against him. And people were like, all right, well, he's got to be guilty of one of these. That's interesting. Well, maybe, maybe. So these are diehards. Like, yeah, I was going to say, I'm hoping that that woman that Semaphore interviewed is uh, reflective of what you guys were just saying, which is the feedback he's getting from the folks at these rallies. These are the biggest. These yes. The and most. I also do think we are, uh, we are, it is March of, of 2023. We're almost a year out from any actual voting. And there's a difference between, yeah, of course I support them. To, and it's getting close. I support them and I'm going to yeah. cast my vote yeah, for this person. Again. Well, just to get into the primary a little bit more. Um, Trump also uh, continued to go after Tiny D uh, at the Waco rally, uh, who was 
currently his only real primary threat. But the crowd wasn't really into Trump's DeSantis impression. Uh, Let's listen. When a man comes to me, tears in his eyes, he's at almost nothing in the polls. And I said, I can't give you an endorsement. There's no way you can win. You're dead. I said, you can't win, can you? How do you can win? Sir, if you endorse me, I'll win. Please. Please, sir, endorse me. And I said, all right, let's give it a shot. You know what's funny is I've heard him say this a couple other times, and he, it's, a, it's a classic Trump. He starts, he was al- almost had tears in his eyes. Now it's, now it's, he did have tears in his eyes. Next week it'll be like, on, he was he on was, the top of the he, bridge. He couldn't breathe. He was on the top of the bridge, and I said, get down, Ron. Get down, Ron. I'll endorse you. <laughs> you have to jump off Epcot. <laughs> um, so the crowd's muted reaction was noted by uh, many media outlets, including none other than Fox News. Uh, right-wing pundit Mark Levin tweeted, quote, conservatives don't like or want the personal mocking. Yeah, right. You guys yeah. buy that? They no, love I, it. They it, love the yeah. personal mocking. You guys are out there. This is, this, look, I, I'm, this is not to me. A, I, people can read whatever they want, but I, what I saw was a crowd that was bored as fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> Just like truly done. Also, what's most interesting to me is the coverage of the response is muted Versus the reality of when I finally listened to the clip, like there was some they're giggles and it. laughing. They're like it. they're, it's not the stage of the. To your point about it only being March, it's not the stage of the primary yet where any crowd is going to start clapping and applauding for a hit on another for uh, another candidate of the same party. That that's always the case in primaries, at least at the he's beginning. Got, he's softening them up. Yeah, he's warming them up. I mean, pretty soon it'll be treat him like Mitch McConnell. It'll be like cocaine, Ron. You know. Wouldn't support me. Photos with those girls. What was that about? I don't know. <laughs> That's what's coming. That's getting better. I do it's think it's. it's I do think that. it's fascinating <laughs> though that that Fox, Mark Levin. There was also a like an editorial in the New York Post saying that like what is Trump mm. doing? He's inciting violence. Interesting. Murdoch properties going yeah. all Murdoch, in. Murdoch. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting that the Murdoch properties are going all in on uh, DeSantis. Well, he's you know you know Rupert's just recently got engaged. He's right. feeling kind of jovial, <laughs> trying to on life. thinking about maybe he's not as interested in a fascist takeover of uh, of global democracy. Pod Save America is brought to you by the Homegrown OKC podcast. There is way more to the Oklahoma City bombing than any of us knew. You can learn a ton about it on the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. It unpacks the tragic Oklahoma City bombing and how the event still ripples today and calls for political violence. Just days after the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, America discovered the perpetrator was a right-wing extremist, Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today, as seen in the January 6th attack on our capital. Each episode of the Homegrown OKC podcast follows the story of McVeigh, a decorated Army veteran who became consumed with rage, went underground, and built a bomb that killed 168 people. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about a better understanding of the political environment in our country today. I think this is such an important story that tells you so much about radicalization, the far right in this country, the things that were simmering under the surface long before January 6th and some of the origins, which dates back to the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, It's an incredible podcast based on an amazing book. I highly recommend it. To listen to Homegrown OKC, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Ask Sherwin-Williams during the March Spring Sale, March 15th through the 25th, and get 35% off paints and stains with prices starting at $28.92. That means 35% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 35% off all of our other colors. Stop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, 
get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25. Let's talk a little bit about uh, about DeSantis, who's uh, hit a bit of a rough patch uh, before his campaign has even begun. Guy hasn't, guy hasn't un- announced, already pronounced dead. It's un- I'm frustrated, but Here's, I am frustrated that I have to be frustrated on behalf of Ron DeSantis. Go, I know. Please, please that's, go ahead. That's, that's you, the, you've always had a the troubling dynamic. It sucks. I know. You I know. Them. All right. So here's a sampling of stories from over the weekend. Ron DeSantis's donors and allies question if he's ready for 2024 NBC News. Some Republicans fear that their non-Trump savior is showing signs of faltering. Politico. DeSantis looks to revamp strategy amid signs of political strain. The Hill. And but. A new set of public opinion strategies polls showed DeSantis leading Trump by eight points in Iowa and tied in New Hampshire, though when you throw in the rest of the field, he's tied in Iowa and trailing in New Hampshire by double digits. But DeSantis does have the best favorability rating of any candidate in those polls, including Trump, and most other polls, national polls, have shown that as well. So what do you guys think is going on here? So you dig into this, and it is... There's really nothing there. There's really nothing to justify this level of of like narrative shift. You can say, all right, there was a Ukraine gaffe. That's absolutely true. There was he sort of fucked up Ukraine, a Ukraine answer and then did some cleanup. Is that what we'll be talking said about? His, said his carefully written statement was uh, misinterpreted. <laughs> it was a yeah. questionnaire. <laughs> it was a questionnaire. Again, Tucker Carlson offered a foreign policy questionnaire and he filled it out and then was like, how could you mistake my record? How could you take record? that out of context? Unbelievable. Uh, but he, So he's doing cleanup there. We, we'll be talking about that statement in a year. Probably not. Uh, that DeSantis went from darling to dud because Trump sucked up the oxygen by attacking him, which suggests like d- when you said he was going to be the Trump slayer. Did you think that was going to happen without Trump ever noticing? Right. Like Trump is doing exactly what everybody would expect Donald Trump to do. And it's having an effect that everybody would expect it to have. If that means DeSantis's campaign has stumbled, it means it was never going to succeed. So that doesn't make any sense. And then the third piece of it is that DeSantis didn't go hard enough at Trump when he was potentially being indicted. But also DeSantis took the bait by going after Trump because of the potential indictment. Those to me are sort of the three main points None of which is, to me, a real critique, and all of them are just sort of what was going to happen at this stage. So it feels like everything is just basically static. What do you think, Tommy? Look, it's obviously not a good thing for a politician to do their big book rollout and their national press tour and then see their national polling numbers just collapse. I mean, that's not great. I don't know why it happened. I think with these early state polls, the Axios leading with the head-to-head numbers is so stupid. It is not going to be a head-to-head contest in Iowa or New Hampshire. And in some sense, when you look at this not as a head-to-head contest, the numbers look pretty static from where Trump was in 2016. You know, like 39% in New Hampshire is very similar to the 35% Trump got in New Hampshire in 2016. So I'm just like, maybe we're all just like making too much of a bunch of polling from some random Republican firm that got leaked to Axios and misleadingly framed would be kind of my takeaway. I would just, what I see is a race that has not really shifted. Mm. And I see DeSantis was the Trump slayer. (laughs) Then DeSantis campaign stumbles out of the gate. And now we are set up for DeSantis, the comeback kid, which will happen in a couple of weeks. And I do think that... Will it happen before he even announces (laughs) his campaign, which is at the earliest is going to be June? (laughs) And all of this to me is like, you know, you look at the... I I think you have to look at the trend in polling. And the only thing I see is in polling that shows DeSantis doing a little bit better in early states than he is nationally, is it tells you that the Trump support nationally is soft. And it does remind me of a lot of the polling we saw in early 2007, where you had Giuliani leading nationally, but you actually had uh, uh, McCain and Romney and Huckabee doing far better in Iowa and New Hampshire. And you had Hillary Clinton leading 100% every single poll. Literally every until, single until one. Until September. Un- uh, 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 until September and really mostly through and the mostly, rest of, most mostly of September too. Yeah. Nationally, basically everything. And then in Iowa, it was actually Edwards and, and, and Hillary going back and forth, but ultimately Obama taking the lead there. And then in, and so it shows me that I think the, the race is actually pretty static and Trump has the lead, but it is soft. That's, that's yeah. how I see it. On the polling, to Tommy's point, you can't take one poll from one firm as as gospel. You can't take many firm many polls from many firms as gospel. But 
from here on out, you should always pay more attention to the state polls than the national polls. What the national polls are useful for is, as Lovett just said, trends. And, you know, Nate Cohn did a piece in the New York Times about this. You know, you, you, all in all, DeSantis has gained about four points on average over the last month with, that, that warrants all this, you know, crazy narrative shifting. So it's I, I'm with you. I think it's a pretty static race. Dan had an interesting theory in um, in his message box today about all this, which is that Trump is just better at getting attention. Oh, absolutely. Than DeSantis or that anyone, <laughs> maybe anyone that's ever been in politics. And. I think at this stage in the primary, the candidate getting the most attention tends to do better in the polls. That's also partially explains the discrepancy between national polls where he's far out ahead and state polls where people have more to go on than just a national media narrative because they're starting to meet DeSantis and see more local coverage about these candidates. The, the and feel connected to their vote, the importance of yeah, their vote as an early state voter. Like national polls right now showing that Trump is leading to me is a very soft support for someone they want to rally behind because he's under attack by some Soros back liberal fucks in New York. The the quote that jumped out of me in this New York Times story about the Waco event was from a guy named Jeff Feebert, who was like a, a farmer who's a diehard Trump person. He said, uh, I like DeSantis, I do, but the ground that needs to be covered is going to take Trump to get it done. Uh, and that Trump reminds him of the kind of person who goes into the bar and knocks all the bottles off the shelf just to see where they land. That to me, I thought was like a pretty good summary because this felt like DeSantis wasn't that kind of guy. And a lot of these Trump voters just want a nominee who will kick the shit out of the people they hate the most too, right? Yeah. The liberals, the media, the deep state. That's where I think, to the extent that I think DeSantis has screwed something up, I think that Republicans want a fighter. Trump is beating the crap out of him and he's not fighting back. And I know he's in a tough situation, but I don't think that's a great look for him in terms of voters who want someone who goes into a, a, a bar and knocks the bottles off the shelf. I think the big question in this primary, which is why I still in my heart of hearts, I can't, can't predict who's going to win this thing, is I think there is a cohort of voters who are exactly as Tommy described. And I think they make up the core of Trump's base. I think there's a core of voters who've decided they're done with Trump. They don't want anymore. And then I think there's a key group of voters in the middle here who were like, much like that woman that was interviewed at the rally, who were like, you know, uh, I love Trump, always will love Trump. I'm kind of open to someone else, kind of worried that he's not going to be able to win again. And I'm not sure for them the fighting thing is as important as it is to the Trump base voters. But I do think what's important to them is like, getting to know Ron DeSantis and seeing him and stuff like and and Trump's just going to blot that out particularly I guess if all these indictments come when I was when I was just going back and looking at the polling from 2007 to 2008 one thing that pops up is uh, McCain for a while was counted out you had Giuliani leading maybe Romney was going to take it but then all of a sudden as you head into the fall there was a bunch of polling that started to show that McCain was the strongest general election candidate, that that Romney was getting destroyed by Edwards and even Clinton and 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 uh, uh, but but McCain was always the strongest general election candidate. And as we get closer, I think like the electability argument starts to play in. And that's where whatever's going on with whatever whatever attacks they want to launch against the judicial system, the fact that Trump being under indictment starts to become a liability yeah. with independence starts to sink, get into the conversation. And Ron DeSantis gets to start making an argument about electability and stability that will carry more weight as we get closer. I mean, I, let's just say, if you, have a, if you have a nominee on March 27, 2023, you're a weirdo. Most of the country does not care. They have yeah. not chosen. These are like the diehards that we're talking about. The one thing in this story that did jump out at me is relevant is the big donors pausing contributions. There's the Uline family, this yeah. like right-wing billionaire family that just pumps money into the worst causes you could ever imagine. It did sound like they are pausing on their checks according to some outlet. I forgot who reported it. I also thought, and and there's some real galaxy brain takes going on here from some of these Republicans in the NBC story. There was one uh, Republican operative who said, DeSantis should have said in response to the potential Trump indictment, under no circumstances will the free state of Florida allow this political prosecution to take place. And then according to that Republican operative, that would have made DeSantis look like the alpha and Trump look like the beta. <sighs> because because DeSantis, to your point, then DeSantis would have been the tough this guy the, because he can protect Donald Trump and it would have driven Trump crazy. I was like, fucking, what, what is that? This is that, the Charlie Kirk thing. Charlie said we should, really? Florida should be a sanctuary state for, for Trump. 
But the idea that that somehow helps okay. to <laughs> helps to send is of, just like a lot. And it it is alpha. Anyone who says it's alpha, anyone who says alpha, it's just like people. These like Jordan Peterson, broken brain people. Yeah. Well, it does. It does. It does resonate with uh, with certainly a portion of that base. To your point about the electability argument, love it. It's hard for DeSantis to make that argument right now too, because if you look at the polls, like. Some polls, he's performing slightly better than Donald Trump against Joe Biden. Some he's not. Now, if we get into Trump under, you know, with multiple investigations and potentially multiple indictments down the road and Trump's out there on the national news every day saying crazy shit. And then you start doing general election polls and Joe Biden's leading Trump by a good deal and DeSantis is closer. Then he can start making that argument. It's just a harder just argument for him to make right now. It's too, it's early. too early. All right. We will talk about this and more with Jen Psaki right after this. Hey, it's me, your barista. You know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Well, now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. And it's foaming delicious. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. Now in stores. It's foaming delicious. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work. Tasks are taking forever to complete. And getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25. Beyonce, Katanji Brown-Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, The Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color-founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids' books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life, maybe that's yourself, to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. Joining us now, former White House press secretary and current host of Inside with Jen Psaki, which airs Sundays at noon Eastern on MSNBC, our old pal Jen Psaki. Jen, welcome back. Hi, guys. How you doing? Good. Is this this is your first PSA appearance after the White House, right? You haven't done one. That is true. And I am I'm now wearing jeans and I'm feeling a lot more casual and laid back. So Good. there you Love go. That. A Good. transition of sorts. Saki, congrats on the monster ratings for the uh the first episode. Monster. Oh, thank you. One one episode down, guys. Many to go. <laughs> Let us do a second episode. I don't know. You how many episodes have you guys done? You could give me a little oh, advice. So many. Oh yeah, we most so are many. pretty forgettable. But now we've got it down, you know? Yeah. Trump bad trump is so bad is but bad. you can't take it for granted <laughs> that's the key thing gotta stay in the fight speaking of trump we were just talking about him celebrating the insurrection at his waco rally and threatening violence if he's indicted uh fair to say that probably doesn't play well in the general but um do you think you think that's a winning message in a republican primary what was your reaction to the weekend's events i mean Sometimes I feel like people say things on television or just in general, like, look at Trump. He's just ahead of all of us. He's playing three dimensional chess or whatever analogy is used. And at the end of the day, playing uh, footage from the insurrection. He also had January 6th uh, participants do a performance. It was recorded, but that was also a part of the rally in Waco, which I think somebody from his campaign said something like, um, they, I don't know if they said it was a coincidence or something along yes, those lines, whatever it was, it just didn't ring to be true. And it's so on the nose, the, the analogy of Waco, given that it was a religious cult or a cult, you know, that was, and there was a, a standoff with law enforcement. It's like, 
he's sending this huge message from all of this craziness to his people. I think that's clearly what he's doing. So um, I don't think that it is magical, amazing politics, just like I don't think his uh, his uh, according to his campaign that him wanting to do a perp walk and get photos and uh, make that be a big moment seems like great politics to me. I, I don't it, sometimes it's not sometimes he's not the master genius politician that that people give him credit uh, to be. Yeah, no, I think that's probably right. You had a great segment on your show this weekend about Ron DeSantis flip-flopping on Ukraine. What do you make of the recent round of stories about Republican operatives and donors already second-guessing his campaign? What do you think's going on with his candidacy? Well, he, a couple of months ago when he was kind of up in the polls, he reminded me a little bit of, um, do we all remember Wesley Clark when he oh, got yeah. into the oh, race yeah. in 2004? <laughs> yeah. I remember, I mean, because a bunch of us were on the Kerry campaign, yeah. it was like, oh my God, Wesley Clark is getting in. What are we going to do, right? It's It looked good on paper um, and it seemed like it was going to kind of mess up or change up the race. And it really didn't. And with Ron DeSantis, the thing was that he was what every, he, people were projecting upon him what they wanted him to be. And I remember a story, I don't remember where it was, but from November, December of some donors who attended an event with him. And many of them came out and said, I've, he just, I don't think he was at his best today. And it was like, well, have you seen him before? No. It's like, well, <laughs> so what's his best? <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think this is like, he's now, even though he hasn't announced, he's kind of in that stage of this where people are starting to ask questions and you actually have to have policy positions and positions on things. And when you're not authentic about it, people recognize that. So that's kind of all playing out for him. Um, but I don't know. I mean, he hasn't figured out how to go after Trump clearly. Um, but he also seems to, and I talked about this on the show yesterday. I mean, he also hasn't kind of figured out what his own view is of things. And that's not just a problem sometimes on the Republican side, there's problems on the democratic side on that occasionally as well. But, um, you know, that's never a good, a good message to send to voters. So no, no I don't think he's in search of a lane. I think he's in search of a lane. People are going to still, what's the old term, like lift the hood, kick the tires, kick the tires. All the things. they're starting to kick the tires. And I don't know, the tires may not all be functioning or something. I'm not sure what the analogy is there. <laughs> the Wesley Clark comparison is good. And I hadn't thought about it, but that he actually really did get on an airplane at the very uh -huh. start of his campaign with a sweater. And it was a campaign that was being just entirely about the vote on the Iraq war. And he was asked on that flight, his very first campaign event, uh, did you would you have voted for the Iraq war? And I, he just didn't have an answer. Not only did not have an answer, yeah. but he ended up screaming for his press secretary to come help him. Mary! <laughs> Wasn't it Mary? Yeah, right. something like that. Or Howard Schultz. Remember? It was uh, like, oh, when he gets in the race, it's all going to be over. He's yeah. going to bring the world together. It's not exactly what happened. Yeah, so. He was or, a drip. Or on the... <laughs> I mean, or on the Republican side, in many different That's primaries, bad. especially Good 2016, like Rick Perry, remember? Rick yeah. Fred Thompson. Fred Thompson, yeah. Herman Marco Cain, Rubio. Rudy Giuliani. Whatever Michelle happened Bachman to that guy? Led for Herman Cain, at least, he, he had a moment there. Yeah, he did have a moment. You know? he did, did he have, have the 999 plan? Is yeah. That, am I remembering this correctly? Yeah. Oh, see, we're all kind of remremembering. I vaguely remember what that was, but that that's all affiliated. Yeah. Also, R.A.P., Herman Cain, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Forgot about that. Yeah. His memory be a blessing. Yeah. <laughs> You guys have anything for Jen? <laughs> no, I actually honestly did not prepare any okay. questions. Okay, oh, that's great. Okay, well, I'm just I, here to hang. I, I, but he did work very hard on his joke about Howard Schultz, or it just like came to him in the moment. No, I'm here so to ad lib. He's prioritizing where he does his work. <laughs> I was doing a lot of work with ChatGPT and didn't help. Yeah. <laughs> Saki, how are you feeling about going over to the media side? We're still torn about it. You know, we're we're you know, political hacks at heart, but now you have like a real job at a real network. Where people are counting I mean, on you, you to guys get it are right. Torn about it. You're about how far are you into this journey? Seven years. Seven years. Hundreds Thanks for calling episodes. it a journey. Well, I, what was keeping it sixteen hundred? Keeping it, yeah. <laughs> no. Those are the early I, days. I remember the OG version. Yeah. And back then we were like, Trump, what's going to happen? This remember, is silly. Right. Remember, Tommy, we is were sitting. Is this guy going to be around for that long? Yeah, no. Probably not. Now we're Here like, we will are. the will the indictment stop him? There was a uh, there was a headline. Uh, uh, 
there's a headline in CNN today that said Trump leans into extremism as legal woes mount. And that could have been appearing every day for the last seven years. Literally. Should yeah. we let should we let Jen answer the question that yeah, Tommy so, asked? Oh, yeah. Sure. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, the adjustment has been in part that I mean, I have worked in the White House more than anywhere else in my life, which is a weird thing to say. But I've spent more time there consistently than any other job. Wow, so yeah. part of coming here was also just coming somewhere new. That was like a big company with lots of people. And the first time I did um, a special or an election night special, whatever it may have been in the fall, I remember being nervous. Like I was like the new kid at the lunch table. <laughs> you know, I brought like sna- a bag of snacks. I was like, if I have snacks for people, maybe they'll want to be my friend. I don't know. So there's been an adjustment like that and just learning kind of a new place. Um, And then there's an adjustment to things like, as you guys know, because you are experienced, you know, mediaites at this point in time, (laughs) there are things like commercials, you can't just keep talking, people will tell you to rap and stop. It's all you know, those are things I'm learning all the technical stuff. but, you know, I, I will say that that there is a nerdy similarity. Uh, I mean, obviously, journalism is very different. And what I'm doing, I'm not trying to hide from what I've worked on, where I've been, what I think I can bring to the table in this job at all. So in that sense, I'm not trying to be even handed about abortion or who you can marry or any of that. That's not what anyone's asking me to do or what I'm going to do. But. I will say, you know how when you work in government, how you have like a bunch of people wandering around who are policy experts Mm -hmm. on different things and they kind of, there's a lot of nerds flowing around and they know about different things. There is a weird similarity to that, right? Where it's like, you know, you'll run into somebody who's like doing like a a documentary on NASA, like in the elevator, right? And then, you know, you run into um, somebody who's just been in Georgia. So there's there's a cool aspect of people who are just smart and interesting, trying to get to the bottom of stuff and learn more and different layers of nerdiness. So in that sense, it's similar to government. That's did you, cool. Did you call other trailblazing uh, politicos turned journalists like Sean Spicer for advice before the show? <laughs> <laughs> I have not, although I have a great Sean Spicer story. Please. Ooh. Um, he, well, I mean, we he, it's a small town, right? It was, you know, for a long time, we would be, this was pre-Trump, obviously. He would be one of those people back in 2012, before I went to the campaign, where you'd be in a green room together, or you'd be doing television together, right? He was kind of a run-of-the-mill Republican operative for a while there. Um, early on in, in this last iteration in the White House, I did... Um, I think it was Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, that show. And I talked about how when I needed to get a good laugh, I would pull up the video of him shimmying in his green shirt, you know, from <laughs> yeah. Dancing with the Stars. And he, to his credit, sent me a signed photo of him shimmying in that shirt. Oh, my so, God. Wow. Is, that, is that hanging up on the wall behind you? In one of the it friends? is not. Oh, okay. But I did think that was a little funny, even though, no, I would not call him for advice. And we don't exactly have the same approach to anything. So <laughs> That's sort of like a good maybe bathroom picture. You know, you need a piece of art for the bathroom. <laughs> That's good. It's a conversation yeah. starter. Yeah. What, um, what are you trying to do with this show that uh, you think is like different than other cable shows? I mean, one of the things that we've already started doing and we're going to do more of is spending time or a couple of hours with politicians or elected officials or not even necessarily like I'd love to do this with athletes or musicians or others um, to figure out what they do in their normal day. You know, we call it weekend routines. So it's what are you drink? What kind of coffee are you drinking? What show are you watching? But also what do you like in your normal life? What drives you? What is your background? Um, what do you like to do for fun? And you learn so much about people. I mean, I think it's true for all of us. Having spent two decades, I can't believe that's true, working for politicians of all different stripes, you know, you they're human beings, right? They're imperfect. They have funny quirks about them. I mean, you guys talk a lot about the funny Obama quirks as much as he was an amazing president. He's got some funny quirks, right? Yeah. They all do. And that part of them is so humanizing that, you know, we we ha- we did a piece with Maxwell Frost yesterday. He's such an amazing He's and it's great. inspiring, too. I mean, you think everything's terrible in Washington and government's horrible. One, I don't believe that. I think government and people who get into public service are vast majority do it for the right reasons and do it because they want to make the world better. I mean, he's just like such an inspiring 26 year old who is like outspoken on gun violence. He's just guts. He's going to be around for a while. 
where I'm going to spend tomorrow with Danica Rome. Oh um, yeah. And Danica. Um, and big friend so, of the pod here. Big friend of the pod. But you know, there's, there's so many interesting people out there. So that's one of the things we're trying to do. The other thing is, um, and this has been really fun. I almost start to like giggle because I get so excited about delivering some of these as we're working through them is these segments we're calling don't freak out, which is basically, you know, sometimes it's like everybody's telling you it's a five alarm fire. There are some five alarm fires. Okay. Of course there are. We're, we're living in an era where the former president just like had insurrectionist video, like at his rally. So, I mean, like, let's be real, but everything is not right. And sometimes um, we can take the temperature down and explain stuff. So those are some of the things, but really I'm excited to go out and spend time with people, um, you know, in the environments where they live and work and, and share a little bit more about who they are. Cause I think that's what people don't often get to see about politicians. Are you covering the Gwyneth Paltrow trial? I think she's being scammed. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> I've seen some clips of this and I'm, I don't really understand what happened if I'm being totally honest. You should have me on. I'll walk you through there someone. You <laughs> <laughs> All right, love it. You're invited anytime, anytime. I really, I've watched hours of depositions. Yeah, you have of, yeah. of just this trial. Someone just the Gwyneth trial. into someone else. Oh yeah, I, I right. tried to read like three paragraphs about it, and I was like, this is ridiculous. I watched. Why do clips. I care about I this? Like it. I know that you're out of the White House, but I'm going to ask you to put your your Biden hat back on for a second. Yeah. Our old friend Hans Nichols at Axios just wrote about how the president plans to offer a contrast to the nuttiness of the Republican primary that we were just talking mm-hmm. about. He said, quote, Biden's advisors are convinced the president can overcome his low approval rating by outlining his infrastructure plan Congress passed last year, project by project and city by city. Uh, first question, do you think that's really the strategy? Well, first of all, I'm not, I've known Hans a long time. When I was working like in the house, he was working for the Hill. That is not the sexiest description of a campaign strategy right there, right? <laughs> so I, I'm not sure Hans is going to be hired to do a campaign slogan. <laughs> I think the point is, though, one, I mean, the contrast is a little bit inherent right now. I mean, they don't have to do anything right now except have Joe Biden be president and go meet with foreign leaders and sign bills and host events at the White House because the other side is so cuckoo. Yeah. Um, and so in many ways, the crazy versus the this is way better and way more competent is is happening on its own, which I think is part of the reason why he hasn't announced yet or why he doesn't. I don't know that there's the same urgency that there was six to eight months ago because there aren't other people clearly. I mean, maybe some people will, but at this point, jumping in the primary. And right now, the thing about being president and running for re-election is that in itself is an advantage. You have the music, you have the plane, all the things, right? Yeah. Um, but in terms of the infrastructure, that description, what I do think that how I think they're thinking about this or, or, you know, if I were sitting in there, how I'd be thinking about this is a lot of what they've accomplished. People don't understand what the IRA is, which, by the way, is just like a terrible acronym yeah, for anything. Acronyms are generally terrible. They don't really understand like the Inflation Reduction Act, even if you spell it out. They do understand if there is like a bridge being built in their community, if their road is no longer, if their road is easier to go over, if there's a cool renewable climate project that they can get excited about. And so it is smart because there's still an element of all politics is local that I think is very true to who Joe Biden is, Mm. but also it's how they can do their accomplishments in a way that's not just like IRA bumper stickers, which like, you know, no one knows what that is. Although Tommy's like thinking about like the I- Ireland's right now. Yeah, probably. I'm where I'm going to so. some Protestants <laughs> in a minute. Uh, just to push you on that a little bit, Saki. I mean, every president is like gets told by their advisors, like, uh, sir, you're doing amazing things. Your communications team is just not selling it well enough. And that's <laughs> what we're going to fix this next quarter. Right. And so, you know, that happened to us when we worked for Obama and it pissed us off uh, when Joe Biden took office and they passed a ton of COVID stimulus money. His advisors were out there saying, you know, look, Obama screwed up uh, by not selling the Recovery Act and the stimulus well enough. Joe's going to hit the road and we're really going to sell it. And then we fast forward today and his approval is at 38 percent. And it's just sort of like, is it an antiquated idea to think that you can do these road shows and really sell these granular projects? Well, no, I think that's fair. I mean, I think it's part, it's a little different just to like unpack all of that because part of his accomplishment, what he's done to date is these big bills, Mm -hmm. right? So it's not the totality of the only thing you do, but it's part of what they can lay the groundwork on now before he announces, which is to help inform people in communities what he's actually done, right? And that's, 
that's more about the politics of it, I think, than it is about like when you're in the White House, do you sell it? Does your com is your comms team terrible? I've like long joked, and if I ever do this, I will make you guys mugs. I want like an uh, NACP, which stands for not a comms problem. I like that. Um, I want <laughs> like, one. I want two. I used to joke with my team when I was the press secretary that that like we needed that mug. No one really knew what it meant, but we knew what it meant because <laughs> it's like sometimes it's not a comms problem; it's a policy problem. By the way, um, anyway. Um, I do think once he gets in and once it is an actual contrast with some with a candidate, an opponent, it becomes the like, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. And by the way, that guy over there, whoever it may be, unless Nikki Haley has a massive surprising surge in the polls, <laughs> you know, I'm not betting on it, but we'll see. Um, he is going to be way out of the mainstream on the vast majority of issues. Even if it's Ron DeSantis, he's, yes, less crazy than Donald Trump, or maybe I'd trust him more with the nuclear codes or something, but he still has policies that are way beyond even like most conservatives. I mean, he's way out of what the mainstream is. So that will still be the central part, I would I would bet, I would advise in a year from now. But for now, it's like the stage of like, here's what I've actually done. Yeah, Jen. Do you think so? Recently, there was this photo. It was it was Biden and McConnell in front of a bridge, and it was Kevin McCarthy and the chaos on the floor of the House, and it was this great yeah. co contrast. The Brent Spence Bridge, the Brent Spence Bridge, the famous Brent Which, Spence. By bridge. the way, is a scary bridge. I've driven over a many times because my husband is from Cincinnati, yeah. and that thing is it's rickety. Not a, rickety. Yeah, same. Well, that's it's why we got to fix it. That's why Joe Biden's going to fix it. That's right. Uh, yeah, uh, but uh, you know. Some of what Joe Biden gets, as you were saying, like these are these are this is some some of this is T-ball, right? Like be against violence uh, before democracy. How much would you have when Joe Biden's on the road touting infrastructure, touting uh, uh, climate uh, and environmental uh, uh, infrastructure? How much would you have him enter the fight and start taking shots about what Trump and DeSantis and others are saying? And how much would you let the contrast speak for itself? Well, I mean, when I was there, we didn't do that a lot, um, purposefully, right? And people can judge whether that was the right decision or the wrong decision. But part of that was sort of resettling the nerves of the public, right? So the first year plus, I mean, back, I mean, I left 10 months ago, almost to when I think there was starting to be a little bit of contrast right before I left. But we didn't really do much of that. We kind of let the crazy be the crazy, right? We didn't talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene. We just let the crazy be the crazy. Um, now they've done it more and they are to as a now observer of it they've been still selective about it but they've done it a little bit more obviously as a campaign picks up as he if he decides presumably he's made every indication he's going to run he runs that will become more frequent including when he's out there doing events um you know you got to be careful the official unofficial official political all that kind of stuff but I think it increases over the year. And that makes sense. What do you make of this narrative that's out there now that Biden is is moving to the center because of, you know, they connect three dots here. The opposition to um, D.C.'s criminal justice reforms, his support for the Willow oil drilling project. And now the rumored possibility that the administration may bring back family detentions. Um You've been in government like us and you know that some things yeah. are some things are political strategy. Some things are just an unfortunate sequence of events that you have little control yes. over. And sometimes it's a mix of both. So but what, what do you yeah. what do you make of it? Uh, I think without knowing where the third sits, um, I think the first two are a bit of an unfortunate sequence of events. I mean, the first the D.C. bill, which is complicated, hard for people to understand. There was a total miscommunication, which obviously warrant is you know, there's warranted criticism. But the mayor of DC, Muriel Bowser, did not want that bill, right? Yeah. She also, so I don't know entirely what happened there. But the thing about Biden is he and people like this, they don't like it. He's never been as progressive on issues around um, policing as some in the party might like him to be. I mean, he's, he is has been an advocate for the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. He's been an advocate for reforms, but he has also been a defender of funding the police and that puts it in his budget and things like that. Um, and that's kind of core to part of who he is. So whether people like it or not like it, I don't think it's a shift, I would say. On the Willow Project, as I understand that in my reading, um, I 
there is a legal component there that is a little bit tricky for them. Um, That does not mean, as we all know, it makes it easy to explain and it feels bad. It sounds bad. It feels contradictory. But the legal stuff uh, can be a real pain in the neck when you're in the communications team. And I think it's a case of that. Yeah. Sometimes having to follow the laws are real. A real pain. It's a real tricky wicket. Yeah. (laughs) That's why the Trump Trump people (laughs) are just like, fuck it. We're not going to do it. It's a great strategy. We're not. Right. Right. We were still like, we cannot violate the Hatch Act. You know, we will (laughs) not. Although I I guess I got in trouble once, whatever. But like, um, you know, I got a sternly worded letter. Uh But, uh, you know, they they were like doing their campaign rallies on the South Lawn. Right. We were like. And then with don't the, even, like I'd see an attorney general in the hallway and I'd like move the other way. Wasn't the convention like, speech be... on the lawn? And then and then it was like and then they, they're like, you violated the hatch hack. Pay us five hundred dollars, which means it's just a five hundred dollar fee for breaking the hatch hack. <laughs> so, Jen, you know, you're you're listen, I think anyone who watched you at the podium knows that you are not only uh, brilliant, but incredibly patient uh, and kind to even very dumb questioners. But you're also a tough cookie. You know, we we were in a lot of campaign battles. You shut up. We were in a lot of campaign battles. That was to love it. Do you, own, do, you, do you owe Jen money? No. We were in a lot of fights with Jen in political campaigns. We saw her knife fighting, oh. sticking it to opponents behind the scenes, dropping Little oppo. Knife. So now really. that you're at your new perch, is there anyone at CNN that you want to talk shit about? <laughs> Jake Tapper, Anderson Cooper. <laughs> Let's start a fight. Has Aaron Burnett actually been behind this whole time? Like, what? what who should we go after? No. Jake Tapper, friends, was at my wedding. He'll come for you. I I don't know. I hope not. Um, (laughs) I love his wife, who's like even the better member of the family. I think that's fair to say. He'll probably attack you for saying that. Yeah. (laughs) Who is the other? I'm uncomfortable with this whole conversation. Uh, Anderson Cooper. Not like Anderson Cooper. He's like do. I mean, he's no. All right, we'll do this offline. Appreciate appreciate it. You mentioned (laughs) you mentioned feeling like the first day of school, like have. Uh, Rachel and Chris and Nicole Wallace let you sit at their lunch table? Oh, yeah. Is there a cool kid table? <laughs> Occasionally. I do offer snacks. Um, okay, that's No, I, they have been really great. I mean, I have gotten amazing advice from all of them. Um, you know, Nicole Wallace, like, brought me to one of her staff meetings, and I just, like, watched it all happen when I in my first couple of weeks. Rachel sat with me when I was going through the teleprompter. She may have been in her head been like, ooh, she's not good at this. But she didn't say that. She's very helpful. Chris has been, walked me through how he prepares for sh- um, for shows. Everybody's a little different, right? Yeah. But, right, because famously um, Chris Hayes, you're not allowed to look him in the eyes. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, he's, as long as you don't that break that rule. That was my experience. <laughs> um, so, um, no, they've been all really great. I, I will say there would be a really amazing, because, because I started months ago, I feel like there was such a long lead up. I think people were like, are you actually going to have a show? Or are they like humoring <laughs> you a little bit here? Yeah. Which I feel like I, I got versions of that question sometimes. But because I started in September, I had time to kind of get to know each people and spend time with people. And I went to visit mo- most of the of the anchors in their offices, which there would be an amazing, I'm like, I don't know who I'm pitching this to in the world, magazine piece, some sort of story about their offices, because it's like, they're everything you want them to be, Ooh. you know? I mean, like Chris Hayes has like a stack of news, like of magazine articles. You're like, of course you do. And you've probably read <laughs> all of them. That's annoying, but it's like what I wanted it to be. You know, Lawrence O'Donnell has like, a portrait of like a, a member of Moynihan who he once yeah. worked for. That tracks. I mean, it's just Ari Melber's office is like, looks like it's in a law firm. I mean, it's all the things you want them to be. Yeah, he's got and Biggie's ashes. Yeah. It's just like Lovett's desk is exactly what you'd expect as well. Yeah, it's yep. a pile of shit. Just like Donald bags. Empty, empty sneakers. Neat, color-coded, yeah. color-coded. <laughs> all right. Um, <laughs> your show is fantastic. We are so proud of you. Thank you guys. And Thank so you. happy for the early success that you've had. Uh, please come back to Pate America anytime anytime Jen Saki I thanks will for and you guys come on my show yes anytime anytime, anytime. we'll come bring to New York we'll do it no, no, are you New York or DC your babies it's DC it's babies just... are welcome great we'll bring cool, our... cool spouses are welcome I mean I've already Whatever. been on but no offense to you guys oh wow yeah, that's, right. that's why it was so nice that's why it's so nice yeah mm. right well you know all right one of these days um, anyway thank you guys so much it was great to see you all thanks Jen bye Sanders said him hey Gwyneth <laughs> telling you Sanderson took Gwyneth out he took him took her out and then he <laughs>
I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Are we still recording? Yeah, yeah, sure. Gwyneth Paltrow is being railroaded. Don't believe TikTok. She is the victim. Wow. Everybody wow. turned up on. For Gwyneth. Okay, give us 60 seconds on 60 this. seconds. Here we go. Okay, so basically, here's what I believe happened having watched so much of this trial. And again, because I don't want to be sued because this guy's litigious, I <laughs> am just sharing my allegedly, opinion. Allegedly, allegedly. My yeah. opinion. Now, he claims that he hit. Hit, uh, that, that he claims that Gwyneth knocked him over with such force that he broke ribs and got a concussion. The problem is he doesn't remember that happening and does not deny that when the collision happened, Gwyneth Paltrow said, you hit me. And he said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The eyewitness was 40 feet away and was confused about whether or not Gwyneth was wearing a helmet. In fact, denied that she was. She was. Gwyneth's story has been incredibly consistent that, that, that this guy hit her. Not only that, all the reports by the ski instructors and ski patrol, everyone verified that the story was Gwyneth was hit. And the report that the ski instructor filed when he got to the bottom of the hill was that Gwyneth was hit. What happened was right as the ski instructor was skiing away from the scene after everyone was said to be okay, everybody was done. uh, He turned and he said, your buddy just took out Gwyneth Paltrow. And then he got stars in his eyes. Then the dollar signs started showing up. What happens? He lays back down, says he needs help. We're off to the races. When Gwyneth got to the bottom of the hill, before she knew she was going to be sued, she texted, that guy really hurt me. You don't send that text if you hit somebody else. Today's Pod Save America is brought to you by Goop. Yeah, what Hollywood producer got you? What Hollywood publicist? I don't love, some, I don't love the jade eggs. I don't love the jade eggs, and I don't love brone broth for lunch, but I know an innocent person when I see one. All right, I'm calling balls and strikes here. Justice for Gwyneth. Justice for Gwyneth. I hope you you, are you in the J6 chorus going <laughs> to record a justice? G6. <laughs> the G6. The G6. We're part of the G6 chorus. I'll sing it. I'll get, sing it. Get chat GPT to write some lyrics And one last right point now. about this. One last point about this is I will oh say that, that Gwyneth's performance prepared, on the stand. This is more preparation than Gwen, you for the whole Gwyneth's fucking pod. Gwyneneth's performance on the stand is the best. She's, is one of the best performances <laughs> she's handed in since Shakespeare in fucking love. She is exquisite on the stand. She makes these lawyers look like fucking dunces. Someone compared it to a Xanax versus an Adderall. The lawyer being the Adderall is very funny. That, that, look, here's the thing. That poor, that poor lawyer that was trying to interrogate Gwyneth Paltrow, I'm sorry. You may be the best they've gotten you top but this is hollywood good you're up you're you're not going to be able to you're not going to yeah, be able to yeah. take when it's right. a peg. This is oscar good all, all right. i can tell you is the truth said did she win one i don't even well know. she did uh, win an oscar uh thank you to jen saki thank you to jen saki um thank you uh to, to Gwyneth, to, to our Court TV correspondent, John Lovett. That's how Savannah Guthrie got her start. you watch your tongue pal i know hey. i know yeah i know she's she a big did. shot now yeah i'm not a lawyer though unfortunately you're not no no one no one would be there's the rub all right. All right, everyone. We will uh, we'll talk to you later. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Andy Gardner-Bernstein. Our producers are Haley Muse and Olivia Martinez. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis sound engineered the show. Thanks to Hallie Kiefer, Ari Schwartz, Sandy Gerard, Andy Taft, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montu. Our episodes are uploaded as videos at youtube.com slash podsaveamerica. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like, pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com podcast 25.